Real Estate Problems into Profits is hosted by Andrew Welchek, a partner with Cohen, Huckman, and Allen Attorneys at Law. In every episode, Andrew interviews other real estate professionals, including realtors, brokers, attorneys, investors, and developers of commercial, mixed-use, and multi-unit residential properties, and provides insights into real estate law. You can find this show on www.chalegalteam.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here's the host of Real Estate Problems into Profits, Andrew Welchek. Hello out there in podcast land. This is Andy Welchek, a partner of the law firm of Cohen, Hockman & Allen. As you just heard, we have a pro- podcast going on today to chat with my good friend, Corey Birak, who is a uh, government affairs, public affairs counsel for folks in New York. Corey, take it away. Tell the folks who you are and what you do. Thank you very much, Andrew, for having me. And again, my name is Corey Birak, and I work in the government affairs uh, area. Uh, My focus is on public policy and making it happen, unhappen, or seeing that clients get a seat at the table so they're not messed with when those things occur. Uh, Generally, I work with uh, labor unions, business around the coalition, uh, candidates for public office, folks in public office who like to perhaps get to the next level. And it it really is a bit of an evolution from when I served in government for a couple of decades, working on public policy, making it happen, getting laws done, uh, policies in place. And uh, if people go to my website, CoreyBurak.com, or you can go also to strategicpublicpolicy.com, you can get a good flavor of the things I've worked on in government and out of government uh, since I left then. It's basically been, for me, a lot of fun because you get to make things happen and make a difference uh, for people uh, and how we live our lives. And it's such an essential service. How few people actually are able to tap into the expertise that you have? I mean, where do you find most of your clients? It's basically folks I met or used to, so I don't have to advertise in that sense. I don't have to, like... uh, in terms of Google hits or work LinkedIn or social media. Sometimes when I'm working those things, it's more about advancing the policies or needs of the clients rather than promoting myself, uh, for example. So it's really people I've met along the way, and I haven't really had to go out of my way to expand that, uh, fortunately. So it's people I meet, and the like, you know, occasionally something comes out of the blue, and that happened in one case. Uh, but it turned out uh, on a listserv that I was on that often I make suggestions. Somebody said uh, he needed help uh, uh, dealing with uh, a public utility and not knowing what it was about. I said, maybe you should just sort of just contact your local elected official. Uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call from somebody saying, I hear you can help me with uh, National Grid. I said, okay, and we spoke, and I did help that person out. And then after it was all done, I said, well, how did you come to me? He said, my client, my uh, attorney gave me three names, and I looked at your website, and I liked your website. So that made me feel good about my website, you know, because uh, the website is something uh, I kind of designed and, and chose the content myself. 
That's terrific. You know what, what? What's the secret sauce? How would you navigate community concerns where development is concerned, for instance? I, one of the issues I'm sure you deal with is neighborhood concerns about building, development, changes, things like that. Well, it also depends on which side you're going to be on, but I think it's really integral to meet early with the community groups and build faith with them. Uh, I serve on a community board in Queens, and so many times there'll be a presentation, whether it's an item that goes to city planning or the board of standards and appeals, and they've never engaged the local elected officials. They never really engaged the community first. And if the first time you're doing it is when you're doing it at that public hearing, you're really doing a disservice to your client. I remember in one case, an elected official once uh, telling a friend of mine who is a zoning and land use attorney, you need, you got to see me first. And, they, and and there's something to be said about that. And it's a respect thing too, but it really makes sense. So the local elected officials are put into their community groups. They know who the leaders are. They can make those soft introductions. You can build faith, you know, and develop a relationship. And it's often that when you're working in a particular space, you're going to be coming back there. Uh, usually places that end up having development have a lot more development and a lot more zoning issues. So you're going to end up seeing the same people. So if you develop a relationship and you can work things out, you're better able to uh, navigate. And, you know, it'll probably save your client a heck of a lot of money since, you know, usually on a development project, we're talking about loans and financing and it's taken that course. No kidding. And uh, that's what the elected official's job is, is to be mediators, to help the community. Uh, developers are part of the community. Not everybody agrees about what everybody else in the community wants to do, but that's the function of the elected officials to try to mediate those uh, those concerns. And, and that's where you come in, because you help people make those introductions. And in fact, you wrote the book, right? The public ought to know. Tell us more about that. Well, it's a book based on a series of columns I wrote when I first left government. And it touched on a lot of issues from development to the budget to public policies and how to get things done. And it it, it really, I think, uh, also sort of set the table on issues that needed to be resolved. Some of those issues still need to be resolved. And I feel the solutions are in that book or the bases of a, of solutions are in that book. And it's, I think, a, I would say it's a must read for anybody in public office or aspiring to public office or working with an elected official. I think it empowers you with information and how best to get things done on the government side. And I think that's where it's, it's most helpful. You know, some of, the, some of the things in the book actually ended up happening, you know, which was nice. Imagine that, telling true stories. Who yeah. does that anymore? And this is all about New York City, right? It's primarily New York City, some New York State-based. And how I got to each column, sometimes something happened. In one case, I was away, and my son was called up and complained that it was noisy out front. Uh -huh. and, you know, and it had to do with the uh, leaf blowers and other lawn equipment that are going on. And, you know, to be frank about it, really? there are places where it's banned. It's not banned in the city. It could be. And besides the fact that it's not really good for the environment, then there are alternative ways than having those noisy leaf blowers uh, blowing dust and things around. 
and getting cars dirty on the street while they're doing it instead of just raking stuff. Uh, obviously, there's alternatives like battery-operated blowers as well. It can certainly uh, make a difference. Where can people get your book? They can get my book on Amazon or uh, Barnes and Noble or uh, and I, you know, uh, or uh, Apple. Uh, it's very easy to do. You can just go to my website, and there's a link on the homepage. Go to CoreyBurek.com, and you can choose the uh, platform you prefer best. It's an ebook. And the name, again, is The Public Ought to Know, and ain't that the truth? Yes. So let, let's, let's talk about a particular example. You and I have chatted about this before, and it's a very current and hotly debated issue, and that's congestion pricing in the Central Business District in Manhattan making people pay up to $23 to go do work, show up for their doctor's appointment, meet their loved ones, whatever. Or or think about it. If you live in the zone, it could be that your parents come in to watch your kids and now they got to pay. Or if you want to go visit your parents outside the zone, or if you've got an elderly parent in the zone and you want to come help them with their, their chores, it, it affects uh they always like to talk about London and in London, it's more like a business district. If you've ever been there and it's also a more narrow zone. Um, and it's not necessarily working all that well to begin with, but at least in London, when they uh, schemed it out, uh, and I consider this a scheme more than a, a plan. Um, so choice of words are intentional, but they actually did increase uh, the level of bus service in all, and all in this well, case, I want to say in the New York case, there has been no plans to increase capacity concurrent with the imposition of tolling. So there's no there's no increase of capacity on transit, whether we're talking Long Island Railroad, Metro North, subways, bus service, or even the uh, New Jersey Transit, which obviously the MTA does not have control over. So it's important to note that to begin with. So, you know, it's a misnomer in that sense. Uh, that it's essentially it's something that doesn't make sense and I'm at a you know they passed the legislation this time that says you have to net one billion dollars but you keep but the proponents keep saying the whole purpose of this is to decrease uh, passenger vehicles not necessarily cabs not necessarily app based uh, for high vehicles like Ubers and Lyfts but essentially passenger cars driven by private people into Manhattan, into the zone. Yet, if you reduce that, you have fewer people who have to pay a higher toll because it's math. They got, it says you've got to net $1 billion. So on its face, it doesn't make sense. And are they just trying to say that you've got to be really uber wealthy to be able to drive into Manhattan and ultimately to live in Manhattan? And on a car in Manhattan, is that what they're really saying? And they say that it's going to improve the environment. But as almost all of us know, and this is even before we're talking about going to electric vehicles, which is going to happen sooner than we think now with the uh, mandate from California that tends to impact what goes on in the other states in terms of uh, shifting towards electric vehicles. But the fact is most cars, unless somebody's playing around with it, are now you know, fuel efficient and not uh, uh, increasing uh, the pollution. And most of the pollution in Midtown and much of Manhattan these days are, in fact, in the buildings. And that's why there's that local law 97, uh, which has been requiring 
uh, buildings to uh, become, uh, air, you know, uh, efficient. Uh, and there's reasons for that. Um, so the whole ra- so all the rationales we hear from the proponents of congestion pricing essentially are misnomers at best, sometimes false, sometimes outright lies. Uh, the a number of passenger vehicles going to Manhattan that aren't liveries, aren't uh, the app-based vehicles have declined significantly over the last decade. Most of the uh, congestion is, in fact, from the Uber and Lyfts cruising because they don't have passengers. Uh, unlike taxis, uh, which drop when they drop off, they can pick up at the same spot almost and often do. And, you know, there's something I, you know, when there's been no... There's been nothing done about, for example, taxi stands, which probably should be part of the, you know, a plan uh, with traffic and addressing it, you know, so we even have less cruising of even the old taxis. But apart from that, we're facing a problem where you have a solution that makes absolutely no sense in, in, in anything but an abstract situation. But in the reality on the ground, it makes no sense. You're talking about Again, they got a net a billion dollars with this plan. It's not that it's supposed to be a revenue plan, but it may cost, you know, several hundred billion dollars a year to run the program. Or I'm sorry, a hundred million dollars a year to run the program. So now you're talking about maybe having to net one, you know, gross 1.4 to net that one billion dollars, maybe more than that. So why not look at if you, if revenues are really in need, and obviously there's been a lot of federal stimulus money that's come in that could go was the capital plan, and, you know, it's not like the books are open to the MTA. But why not look at other revenue plans uh, that do not impact, uh, you know, folks who need to drive? You know, we're supposed to be talking about the universe of people who haven't, and, you know, I don't mean to cut off and just keep on rolling with a monologue, Andrew, but... You know, you think about it, you got all these small businesses in Manhattan, restaurants, jewelers and the like, and a lot of people who shop do come in by car. People who come into Broadway, they're coming in maybe late afternoon, they're coming in first to the restaurant, then they're going to a show, they might even go for coffee and dessert someplace afterwards. If you reduce that and it's totally dependent on tourism, that may not be enough for Broadway in itself and other businesses to survive. Uh, my family had a package store in Forest Hills. I always used to think that the person who came in for the cases who drove in their car, um, you know, they were an integral part of the clientele. If that person, that person, a person's not going to love the case on the uh, Long Island Railroad home to Queens or Long Island or on the subway or a couple of cases, but they may come in and buy a couple of cases of liquor and wine. They may, you know, uh, and there could be other cases, you know. And again, if if you're saying, oh, well, they'll just order it and now you'll ship it. Well, now that delivery truck has to pay when it goes out in the zone, that increases cost. And again, there's people who live in Manhattan who have, you know, get deliveries and have service people come. And if they're going to have to pay when they go into the zone, that, that's going to increase the cost and increase the cost across the board. So, Corey, let me pick your expert brain on the process here. Uh, Those who are for or against it at the moment, now we're talking about congestion pricing again, 
what happens next? Has it been decided and is somebody litigating or is there a public policy, a public hearing process going on? Exactly what is the next step? Well, there's no litigation at this time. Uh, I don't want to suggest that there could be. Uh, Westway was defeated by a snail daughter. Uh, this is affecting uh, real people. So arguably... Well, uh, where do those real people go if they want to voice their opinion? Well, right, now, right now, there's public hearings. And if you go to keepnycfree.com, which is uh, the website of Keep New York City Congestion Tax Free, on their media page, the thread at the top, there's a link, and it lists, it takes you to where to sign up for the hearings the MTA has. And there's a few more hearings this week, including starting today at 5. And they will be taking public comments through September 9. So it's important for people to tell their stories, how it affects them individually, and put that on the record, number one. And I think part of what's happened is I don't think there was a lot of thought. This, when congestion pricing was done by state law, it was done as part of the budget process. So the kind of discussion and sense of it hitting people wasn't quite there. So this is a real opportunity for people to make their voices hear, heard, for legislators to see it. It could be very well that this may be a contested issue uh, in the races for state assembly, state senate, and certainly for governor, uh, and see how that plays out. And in that context, that may move towards a solution, may move them to look at alternative revenue. So we're in an environmental assessment stage. I personally believe the environmental assessment is insufficient and there should have been a finding of, they made a finding of no, no significant impact, the FONSI as it's called, FONSI. But in fact, I believe a full EIS, a full environmental impact statement is needed. And there's others who have called for that, including some members of Congress. And that may ultimately come out of this process that there's a discussion. For example, there's been questions about diversion of trucks to the Cross Bronx Expressway, which is already congested, and how are we going to address that? Now, people have said, okay, you can deck over it, but congestion pricing, if, it, if everything went according to their schedule, it would start next spring. There's not going to be a deck over the Cross Bronx Expressway if that was a no. solution. Uh, and that might take, for all I know, it could take decades. I mean, I saw how long the uh, Van Rick Interchange in Kew Gardens has taken where I lived in Queens. So, just you know, so I, you know, so I think the fact that you can say there's a solution, it's not going to be there right away. Or if there's diversion traffic on the uh, BQE and, and just which is already congested, and certainly, uh, or you know, traffic that goes along the Tribal Bridge, you know, if they try if they divert, you know, off the Bruckner or Major Deacon into uh, the tribal rather than going to Forest Bonks the full way. The point is, there's going to be, that's all through in what they call environmental justice communities, where uh, there are real issues and there are folks at the lower income stratus, and that that's not addressed. So I think that it's, it's not unlikely that there will be a lot of pressure to do a full EIS on this to begin with. And if revenue really is a need, remember, they were expecting to be able to buy on this congestion pricing to get $15 billion for uh, the MTA capital plan, that is, for, for the years 2020 to 2024, so more than halfway into it, if you will, uh, it, maybe there ought to be looked at other revenues on our website at kbmc3.com. 
including my testimony, which is on the uh, keepnyc3.com media page. Uh, there's a whole there's a host of alternate revenues that can be explored um, that may make sense and uh, spread the burden fairer. And one of the issues that uh, the uh, many opponents of congestion pricing have said, I've heard from some of the Long Island and uh, particularly in out of Rockland County and Orange County, is that we give them more money, we're not getting any projects out of this. And why not create some sort of revenue measure where the revenue generated in that county goes to mass transit in that county, for example. Well, you know what? You raise an interesting question. Just as the devil's advocate or the MTA's advocate in this case, the subways are not full anymore, right? COVID emptied them, and now they are slowly filling back up, but they're not like they ever were, and so there are a lot of seats there. Just um, There are seats in some places, but the reality is there's not capacity during rush hour. You so know, you could fill every seat. In other words, there's not capacity to absorb why, uh, former drivers of cars, if in fact that's what would happen, where those drivers of cars come from. And many of them come from places that are considered transit deserts. So they would first have to take uh, a bus to get to a subway. There's a lot of things that need to be done. And concurrent with all this happening, there's been bus redesigns in some of the boroughs already. Uh, there's one in progress in Queens that hasn't been done yet. But every proposal the MTA has done has basically cut service, not increased service, including their current scheme for Queens. And it's something that folks in my community have been complaining about rather strenuously and, you know, pushing back against the MTA's plan. Um, why doesn't the MTA have more money? Why doesn't it have more money? Well, part of it is during the uh, years of Governor Pataki and Mayor Giuliani, there was a disinvestment by the city and state in the uh, subway system in particular, on the, particularly on the capital side. And they made, and the way that was made up was by using the fare box in part uh, for bonding when the fare box really should go totally to operations. But the, there's, a, there's another side to this, and it has not been really pushed enough. There's no doubt that the public transit system in New York City is an integral part of the economy and driving the economy of the city. And the city's role in the region and the nation is significant. So therefore, there was a real rationale for state, more state support and certainly more federal support for the subway system. Now, the other side of this is, is there waste in the system and can that be addressed? And you can probably find waste anywhere where you're looking at it. Maybe you can organize it better. And those are other issues. Uh, whether that waste can be significant enough to address uh, the needs that's, uh, I'll leave that for somebody else to argue one way or the other. I think that it's important to find appropriate resources. And if one of the places you find that is, in fact, through waste, you can look at it. But there's a number of things when you start looking at how the MTA operates. For example, uh, right now you do get a free transfer from a bus to a subway. You do not get a free transfer from uh, the rail from a bus to the rail and I once did an analysis that if you instituted that in the city 
it would pay for itself, for example. Uh, you know what? We're, we're going to wind up here, but this is a perfect example of, why, of what people can come to you and get help with because you know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's plainly obvious. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to share that with our uh, audience out there in podcast land. And uh, let's remind them again how they can reach you and uh, what kind of matters would be of you could be of most help to them about. Again, you can reach me at my website, CoreyBierak.com. That's the easiest way. You might just putting the Corey and Beer Act together and the .com after that. And it's easy to find me. My contact information is all there. That's the easiest way, uh, I think. Again, CoreyBierak.com. And certainly if it's a public policy issue and you have an issue relating to government and need to get something done, uh, just even for guidance, I'll be glad to talk to you. And if it's something that I think you can resolve just by going to your elected official generally, I'll tell you that. If it's something that maybe you need a referral to some other kind of professional, whether it's something that, for example, you do, Andrew, as I've done in some cases, uh, I make that kind of referral. I, you know, I, I, the idea is to help people. And I'm about helping people. I work, you know, in, with some nonprofits as well as a volunteer. And uh, it's about making a difference. So if I can help people dealing with the issues of, that they face on the government side, uh, it's something uh, I look forward to doing and trying to help and help direct people. Well, I know, I know for a fact that you are a guy who knows a guy uh, about almost anything. <laughs> and it's been helpful to hear perfect examples of that regarding congestion pricing and the other issues we've, we've talked about today. We're going to wind up now. Uh, it, what, what's the last thing you'd want to tell folks who are listening or watching today? Uh, the name of our show is uh, Turning Real Estate Problems into Profits. That's my tagline. What do you have to suggest to folks as the last thought for today? I think that you always can make a difference by giving a damn, by caring, and don't accept no that it can't be done. My belief is yes, we can, and that we can get something done, and we can make something. We can make something better. So if you see something that bothers you, uh, speak up, talk to other folks about it, and discuss it. Maybe you'll find your way to somebody like me or someone else who can help you. But there's no reason. There's no problem that's without a fix. And well, we really appreciate that. And uh, that's a genuine public service. Thank you, Corey. We're going to close out now. Don't go away because you and I have to chat after the rest of the, the uh, huge audience, we hope at least, is uh, off to other things. Thanks again. Thank Francesca. You've been listening to Real Estate Problems into Profits with your host, Andrew Weltcheck, a partner with Cohen. Puckman and Allen Attorneys at Law. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing this show with others. You can catch prior episodes on www.chalegalteam.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. 